Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. My course is set for an uncharted sea, is a quote from the Italian poet, writer and philosopher Dante Alighieri, whose work, The Divine Comedy, is widely considered as one of the most important poems of the Middle Ages and the greatest literary work in the Italian language. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, an Australian with proud Italian heritage and a strong track record of navigating new markets, a leading advocate for game-changing technologies always on the cutting edge. Our guest today is Graham Mirabito, non-executive director of real estate group Harcourts International, online home loan platform Lendy, property technology organization Archistar, and security software company CypherPoint. Graham was previously Chief Executive Officer of RP Data CoreLogic, having grown the business tenfold as it expanded its range of property data and analytics services. He also previously held senior leadership positions within Telstra Corporation, having led their ventures into new and untapped international markets. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in France, Italy, and Brazil, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In an engaging and candid conversation, Graham lends us his lens to the world and shares with us his journey across continents, venturing into the unknown, opening new markets, and staying at the forefront of technology. Now in the boardroom, and an avid investor in PropTech and FinTech, Graham sheds a light on the unseen opportunities, as well as providing us with valuable insight into the Australian property market. So sit back and enjoy. Look up, not down. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you. How was the trip to France? It was great. It was great. We started actually in London for a week and two weeks in France and two weeks in Italy. So you got a really good view of how Europe's kind of handling the current situation. And how is it? London, I felt, was sloppy in their management of things. France, really tight. You couldn't get anywhere unless you're double-vaxxed, showed the certificate. They interrogated the Australian because they hadn't seen that before and they didn't have a QR code and stuff. But, yeah, people are getting on with it. I guess the common element I see across the three countries in Australia as well is just construction, a lot of cranes, a lot of happening. Government's clearly putting money into keeping jobs. Confidence up? What was your, what was your take on confidence in general? Confidence was pretty high, particularly in London. A common theme also was, you know, everyone was a bit over the politicians playing the pandemic to their advantage. So, and things sort of settled down to let's get on with stuff. An important thing, I guess, how was the vino? The vino was very good. Very good. I had to sample them all and <laughs> I did 
eat my way through 19 stars of Michelin restaurants. They're still keeping top form, are they? They are. I mean, they're trying very hard. And I, I guess they also hit by the pandemic and then the distance ratios means they can't get as many covers in and stuff. But they're trying very hard and it's good to see people working hard. What do you see? What do you think? Tourism up? You see a bit more innovation and you see a little bit more effort in taking care of the customers? Certainly, I felt that, you know, particularly in France, it was very, very, very strong. Italy as well. And they've had a good season, whereas last year was a, a nightmare for the industry, but it was a, a very warm summer, a long summer. So they've had a, a really good run. Now, you've got an interesting career. You've had a big career in technology. What made you get into technology? Oh, I think as a kid, I was always experimenting, blowing things up. You know, <laughs> Dick Smith, Dick Smith electronics kits and those sorts of stuff. I was always in trouble, particularly at school. But yeah, so I just like to dabble. Engineering seemed like the way to go. So that's what I did. I was very interested in electrical stuff. And what were the, uh, the key turning points in the career? I think for me, my sister, uh, two of my eldest sisters at school teachers, and they pushed me to, you know, once you finish your engineering, do your business, because I was always had some scheme on the side doing something. Oh, were you? Yeah, painting houses or something just to make an extra coin. Yeah, okay. I was running a V12 Jag when I was 18 years old, and everybody thought I was a drug dealer, but I was just painting houses on the weekend. But I think the key thing was my sister pushing me into doing a business degree. Yeah. And that made me apply for the business side of Telstra. I was an engineer in Telstra and then moved over to sales and marketing, which is great, you know, cutting your teeth in sales and is, is a great career in business. Yeah. That was a big turning point for me. And then the next turning point was moving to London to run Telstra in Europe. What did you achieve there? Zero to 150 mil revenue in three years. Felt pretty good about that. How did you do that? Is that because you're more creative? You Sold see things shit. differently? Yeah. Sold shit. Lots yeah. of shit. Very much having a strategy and a focus, right? So when I got there, the previous regime were just selling to everyone and anyone. And it was a time when telcos had deregulated around the world in the mid-90s. Okay. And it was crazy. Yeah, it was booming, no, wasn't it? And I remember Senator Olsen at the time coming to London. I showed him outside. Everyone's just digging up trenches. So they won't even share trenches. You got 60 telcos in London. Having their own they, trench. Ridiculous, right? <laughs> so uh, so the first thing was set a strategy. Like, why are we here? We're from, from the Asia Pack. What the hell? We're really good at Asia Pack and all these companies in Europe are trying to expand Asia Pack, saying, We are your partner in Asia Pack, so you've got to give me your business here. Yep. So I would not sign up any customer that wasn't active in the Asia Pack. And I went back and sacked the customers my predecessors had signed. Respectfully, I handed them over to BT hospitals and stuff. I said, There's nothing I can do for you on the global stage. I'm here to promote Telstra and its capability in the Asia Pack. And so staying true to that focus was just brilliant. And everybody knew. And so, you know, we won Leica the camera manufacturers, Hilton, British Aerospace, all these companies that at that time, you know, Asia Pac was the golden area to go and expand to. And we had a lot of capability, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, India. Telstra was very active and, and Indonesia building the, the core infrastructure there. And what was your impression of Telstra before you turned up? I thought it was Telstar, the car. <laughs> really? Yeah. I had got that all the time. Could have sold a lot of cars. <laughs> but instead I said, no, I'm the telco guy. But um, no, we, we did well. We did really well. I did the, the other highlight was the first video conference for the royal family. Had Prince Edward come to uh, our office and do this thing called video conferencing for the Duke of Edinburgh Awards down oh, yeah. Adelaide. He couldn't make it down. He says, I heard about this video conferencing staff. And uh, yeah, it was hilarious getting vetted by MI5 or whatever. You say I was a dirty word in business. Sales? Yeah. No way. Everyone's well, in sales. They just don't know it. Yeah, go on. Right? Everyone from the top. Like if the CEO of a company can't talk about what it is their company does for their customers and profitably for shareholders, mm -hmm. then what the hell, right? Like you've – sales is not a dirty word at all. Everybody's in sales in my view. And the best time is going out with salespeople 
I would do as many sales calls in my career as the salespeople would if I was the CEO or the GM. I was out there all the time and you build a relationship. And as you get going with customers, you know, those that you can talk to about new stuff you've got, or if they're having a problem, they can call you and you can call them. It's important to build a relationship with your customer. Right. Yeah, what, about, what about asking for business? You see a lot of people really good at opening doors, knocking on the doors. Not a, lot of people, a lot of people are scared to ask for business, Graham. Got to ask for the order. ABC. I was all yellow pad, AT&T <laughs> training, man. Always be closing. That's right. Handle the hidden objections. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's important. You build rapport, get some commonality. But at the end of the day, if you're not asking for the order, yeah. what are you there for? And they're expecting it. It's just be respectful about how you do that and just say, is there any reason why we can't move forward with this? And So there's much change, Graham. We keep hearing the, you know, the new words, uh, customer experience, a lot more technology engaged in that and measuring the customer analytics, et cetera. But has the fundamentals really changed much? Not really. I mean, at the end of the day, we are analog devices in a digital world, so you can't forget that, right? It stops at a human. And humans like to be sold to by the humans, right? They like efficiency, right? There's some really good robots out there in the real estate industry that will chat with you and go, hey, it's been a year since you sold your house. Would you like a competitive market appraisal? Yes, I would. Cool. Just emailed you one. Are you thinking about buying an investment property? Yes, I am. Shall I get the real estate agent to call you? All that's a chatbot, but it can handle all of that with you, right? So, but you want to talk to a person when you're talking about, well, what do you think I can get for this property? What else is happening? And those sorts of things. So there's a lot there. Technology is there to make us more efficient. So we spend more time with the humans, right? Okay. Not in the office on a keyboard. Okay. Telstra, what's changed since you were last there? Well, I worked for Frank Blunt. I worked for Ziggy. worked for David Thody. I've met Andy Penn and stuff. Uh, I think it's a very different company. You know, um, back when I was there, it was the only telco in the world that had mobiles, yellow pages, cable TV. It had a lot. It was very broad. You know, and Australia is a small place. It does a lot of things. And that's why it's a breeding ground for innovation because we do it out of necessity. Okay. And I felt like probably a few things there, particularly under the Sol Trujillo regime, I think there's a lot of damage done to the business then. I, I left just before they started. And I still catch up with David Thody every couple of months or so. And I think he did a great job in turning that business around. And now I, I think it's sort of don't really keep that close to it. Yeah. But uh, I can see the infrastructure play separating out. I do remember my time in Telstra, I was a bit of a heretic when I said, you know, we do so many financial services transactions, we should get a banking switch. Absolutely. Yeah, and they, of course, the board shit themselves on that and said, well, they are our biggest customers. I go, yeah, but, you know, mobile phone top-up is the biggest product in the world, in the country, sorry, and we're paying the banks for our own product. It's like crazy. So is this the ecosystem now we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. And I always used to say, look up for growth, not down. Don't look down on the cable and pits, look up to the apps. And I was a heretic because I said voice is just an app in the early turn of the century. And everyone said, you can't say that. But look where, where landlines are now. Who's got one? Exactly right. Who is in a house has a landline? And I was just saying, like, I just don't think they're going to be here for long. And that was where most of their revenue was coming from. So I think you do need to see what's happening. And when you see apps riding on infrastructure, if you're getting into the apps, then your infrastructure is going to grow. Back in, in England in the 90s, we used to love that thing called SAP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. used to sap. used to sap everything. <laughs> used to sap the life out of data networks. So you, we'd even have our own trainers go and help our customers train in the Middle East on SAP because we knew once they did and used it, they'd be doubling their bandwidth requirements. So it was worth me having some sap trainers. Culture of innovation, creativity. Are we pushing it hard enough? In some parts we are. Everyone says innovation. Yeah. How much is actually really true? Well, this is where I think recently in 2016, the World Economic Forum called 
the fourth industrial revolution has started, right? Yep. And it was defined by machines can think. That's their kind of catchphrase for it. And, you know, a lot of things have been invented, but we've not seen the benefit of them yet. Is when you take innovation and apply it to what's currently happening, taking costs out of a, a supply chain or making something more productive, applied innovation, I think, is what's not quite there yet. And I think you're going to see stuff in the next five years that you're going to make the last 20 years look like you're playing with Lego blocks because stuff is really happening. It's really working. The AI and stuff is working. Yep. But apply that to some boring processes like processing a mortgage or processing a finance application yep. and suddenly I can apply today and get funded tomorrow. Technology's there to do that, but the process has not been automated and the risk frameworks haven't been automated around that so that you can do that. So there's still too much manual intervention. So I think applied innovation is what's required. There's a lot of innovation out there, in some cases too much, because when you look at the landscape, and I invest in PropTech and FinTech, yep. there are so many, like over 500 in this country, if we've all got a business plan that's saying I'm going to get 5% of the market, you know, a lot's going to end up in tears, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's about picking the ones that can actually get somewhere and then having good mentors to say, look, this has already been done or what's your competitive advantage? Where's your moat around this business because you get paralleled out or, or whatever. So the commercialization aspect of it all. Yeah. I mean, the innovation's there. The tech actually works, whereas five to 10 years ago, tech didn't really do as it advertised on the box. I can't count in time or money. It would always take double the time and double or triple the money. And often you'd reduce your scope just to get the thing out because it was just so much harder. Whereas things, it's a lot more elegant the technology is more elegant, it works, it plugs and plays. So then it comes down just as much to your go to market. Have you really got a market? Are you really solving a problem? Yeah. And have you got an ability to get to customers and for them to sign up and onboard quickly? And that's the bit that, you know, Australia's got a lot of major enterprises there and you need to find a gorilla that's empathetic to your cause yeah. and will use that and give you distribution. Okay, tell me, what does that actually mean? What does a gorilla actually mean? A Telstra, a realestate.com, a domain. You've got some whiz prop tech solution for real estate agents, how are you going to get to 10,000 agencies, 45,000 sales agents, 35,000 on rent roll? Yeah, right. You need a distribution. Who's talking to them every day? Domain's talking to them every day, right? CoreLogic's talking to them every day. Yep. So finding a good go-to-market, whereas you'll see a lot of business plans, I'm raising money, I need a million dollars for tech, $2 million for my go-to-market. And you're going like, so you're going to build another sales force to knock on the real estate agent's door or the mortgage broker's door, and there's already somebody else knocking on their door. You know, partnerships, are, I think, are, are more important. Is that the only way you're going to get scale? I think that's the way to get scale, unless you can hire a lot of really good salespeople really quick. But if everybody else is trying to hire salespeople, then you saw yesterday uh, Telstra and Quantium, what a smart deal. Yeah, you're, Quantium and ComBank, JV, right? I don't know. You're impressed by that, eh? A, they're a great business, really smart people, great board steering that group. But have a look at trying to get data scientists now. These are the rock stars of this century, right? They're very, very rare. And you've got everyone competing for resources. By these JVs turning up, they're using their common data scientist analytics. It's very, very clever, right? Because you get accelerated solutions and you're not competing. Uh, you know, when you compete and you lose someone, you know what it's like. You have to go out and recruit. Yep. You know what recruiters are like. Yeah, good people. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> they're necessary, that's for sure. <laughs> and, yeah, good recruiters get close to a business and know what yep. they need, but you just run out of candidates if they're all just flicking between jobs and then you've got the downtime and the recruit time. How do you pick a good data scientist then? 
you got to look at what disciplines you're looking for. And there's data scientists and some are very good at building analytics. So from that, get an insight and create an actual algorithm like an automatic valuation model says this house is worth 5.3 million plus or minus 10% with a forecast end of deviation of 96, yep. for example, right? Yep. Sorry, not 96, it'd be like, more like five. Yep. <laughs> so someone that can build that model, that's a different type of person that's you know, looking for trends in data and those sorts of things or doing machine learning or AI. So first you've got to, what discipline, what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. And then if they're good at their craft and they've got good technique around benchmarking, sunlight yep. test, does this make sense, peer review? What do you call it, sunlight test? Sunlight test. If okay. I put this out to everyone to look, would they say bullshit or would they say, yeah, that's really good, Okay. right? And then you've got normally the manager of data scientists. It's, it's hard for data scientists to also be good at sales, but you need someone to go, what usefulness is this widget to my customers? What is the value prop here? What will they get out of that? So you left Telstra. Yeah. You moved on and you built a career in the world of property. Well, data. Okay. Well, give us a rundown. What did you do? Well, it was Macquarie Capital had bought half of this company called RP Data. Mm-hmm. He was a Northern Italian. I'm a Southern Italian. So we sat down for about three hours over lots and lots of coffees. And he says, yeah, you'll do. I went in to take over from the founder. And what I found was this beautiful data business that had walking the streets of Australia, photographing every house and built up Australia. Spent millions of dollars of his own money. This was long before Google Earth even existed. Right, okay. So every real estate agent in the country wanted that database because they had a photo ready-made of your – and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And he'd been at it for about 10 years and got it to 20 million of revenue, 21 mil. So what year were we talking about, Graham? 2005. Okay. So he'd been going since 85, he'd been building this. He'd been at it 10 years, so he was in the mid-90s he okay. started. Okay. I started in 2005. Again, just reset strategy, like where we're trying to go, what we want to be. So the first five-year plan, I said we want to be the best data business in the country because we're only number one in Queensland and New South Wales. Okay. A year later, we floated the company, but I had the Americans in as a strategic shareholder before the float. I did a deal with realestate.com. So I got all their data. Yep. And Why would they want to do a deal with you? That was a longer story. Well, the the deal was already done by the founder where we owned property.com and realestate.com had realestate.com. They're both losing a shitload of money and property.com was made up of the major real estate groups in this company, RP Data. Yep. They needed another $10 million of marketing. The agents didn't want to stump up. So he went over and sold it to realestate.com and took 10% of realestate.com. Smart. And had a data sharing license. When I got there, they were at 40 paces with lawyers and stuff. There were things weren't quite right. So we fixed that up, re-signed a five-year strategic, and I gave them back data and analytics, and they gave me raw data, and we created products out of that, as well as had the government data. But in the first month of or two months of being public, we acquired three companies, smaller data, mar and par data shops in South Australia, WA, and Victoria. And we got what sort of data are you buying? What, we're you buying data that they've collected from the agents, data that they're getting from the government on sales settlements. Mm-hmm. And then some would have, you know, development application data, all sorts of data. And it's purely a domestic real estate play? D- there was domestic real estate. so Residential, sorry. I mean. We grabbed those three all within a month and then we became number one nationally because in those same markets, we were either number two or number three. Okay. So buying the number two or the number three, we became number one. Okay. And then I could go talk to the banks because the key was real estate agents were important for data, yep. but Banks is where the money was, banks and insurance. And they wouldn't talk to you unless you were national. So you'd have a national data footprint so they could modify their processes because they were a national product set, right? Yeah, right. Okay. So that was the kickstart that we had. That was residential data. We got to 70% market share. That's when I went after the commercial data. Okay. And then after that, I went after construction data. And after that, you go after people data. That's when you're into the bureau world. So it's a natural progression. 
in the data world. And then you look for more and more insights and you never stop collecting data. So what do you do? Slicing and dicing, are you? Yeah. And, you know, we used to, it was always going back to a selling proposition of acquisition, retention, or cross-sell on the marketing side. Typically, yeah. when you're selling solutions, you're either selling something that generates revenue, something that increases productivity, or yeah. something that reduces risk. Yeah. They're the three buckets of solutions And that in we theory, have. everyone talks about it. If you look at the banks, they still can't cross-sell that well. So no. why were you guys cross selling? So we would say to them, like, for example, one major bank that's got a 28% market share of mortgages, yep. I'd say to the CEO, $8 billion of property came on the market this week and $2 billion of them are your mortgage customers. Do you want to know who they are? You would have thought yes. Yeah, and they did. And so when you showed them, they had an increase in conversion ratio because those people selling were clearly going to discharge and 70% of them go and get another mortgage somewhere else and you're not even aware that they're on the market. Yeah, right. And that's public information. You've got to be sensitive about ringing up and... You don't say, ring up and say, I see your house is on the market. Yeah. One yep. guy did that and uh, the wife said, that bastard, he's selling the house. <laughs> so you do have to get your scripts right. But, you know, our head's up on what's going on. That's common now across the industry, right? That's very common. And it's very important for us to gain leadership and authority and integrity. And that's why we hired Tim Lawless, the research director, who's briefs everybody in this country on real estate. Why do you reckon you're so successful then? Was it because you brought a plan? You brought the right people? Talk us through, you know. That business we took from 20 million to 180 million. And in what period of time? 10 years. And a valuation of 85 mil to probably a billion now. So, yeah, it was good. It was good. We floated it, tripled in value. The Americans bought it 100%. It was a good story. But acquiring those businesses, I was acquiring the property data intellect of Australia because these are all companies that had been 10, 20, some were 30 years old doing this stuff, yep. right? So you just end up with this cadre of really smart people that understood what was going on. And so I think my success was, firstly, I always have a strategy, a five-year plan. I always put my plan on a single page. And I go, this next five right? years, yeah, always, single page. Frank Blunt, CEO of Telstra, taught me that. Yeah. He put the whole of Telstra on one page every year and distributed to all staff. And I did that every year. I did a five-year plan, then a one-year plan, one page out to all staff every year. And the first five years was be the best data business. The next five years be an analytics business. And the next five years was be an insights business because everyone's drowning in data analytics. They don't know what to do with it. Insights says, call these 10 customers now, they're going to leave you. Or go do this now. There's five more opportunities for you there. Like, you've got to give them the, the actionable step. There's no good just drowning people in data or analytics. They've got to tell them what to do with it. If I was a mum and dad business there for 30 years, why did I want to sell to you? Money. Simple as? Yeah, simple as. They've been slogging their guts out, doing their thing. And I had a really good board. We had a very simple mandate. Phase one, go and buy anything at three to five times EBITDA. We were trading at eight to 10. It was a creative day one. And there was lots of companies out there. When I say lots, we, I think I acquired 14 companies in the 10 years I was there. Okay. They got bigger and bigger. And I come and work with you. Why do I stick around with you then? The one thing we did was we did have very clear direction. We're very open. When I took over, I took out all the offices. Everything was open office. And so you set the scene. They're very approachable and the executives had to be the same. Otherwise, don't work with us. And, you know, regular communications with staff. I learned a lot of things from people that really helped me, like in the industry, John McGrath, Charles Tarby, CEO Century 21, James Simon at Aussie. They all took me under their wing when I entered because I knew nothing about real estate and finance other than borrowing money to buy houses. So they really helped me understand John McGrath as well and just – how the industry worked and that sort of stuff. So, and I learned once from James, where he talked about his mate in mining who put screens in all of the offices in his in Sydney so they could see the trucks in the mines and say, this is why we're here. We're supporting them. 
I thought, what a great idea. And I put screens in all our offices everywhere around the country in New Zealand had exactly the same index wall in every single. So when you walked into the business, you would see the index of the world of property and you'd see these screens that were saying how many customers are calling us for help right now, how many listings just happened, how many mortgages just happened, how many sales just happened and just bringing to the people there, the staff, how important we were. And I talked to them about, you know, if we don't get this data right, a bank may decline your parents on their next mortgage or they may lend money to someone that shouldn't have it and therefore they get into trouble. So yep. trying to bring it back to the staff about the importance of what you do. You've got to have a purpose in your business. You've got to have a reason that people want to get out of bed. And they're a great team. People did a lot of really great things. So how do you lead? How do you engage with people? I know you put your signs up everywhere and you've got, I'm updated and you're open, obviously, and you've knocked down the walls. So I feel pretty good about that. How do you engage? You walk the floor. What do you do? You do big I did have scene. a... Um, a little. I like to stand and work. Bought this IKEA table, cut legs off, and put it up there. And I put these red green lights. And if it was green, you can approach a bench. If it was red, because I'd look out the window at the great view. A lot of people put their desk and they've got this awesome view behind them for everyone else. Like fuck that. I want the view, so I just oriented straight out, and I just have this red green. Or at Christmas time, I had this disco thing going, just so take your chances, right? But yes, walk the floor was very important. I actually had a hoverboard and I used to zoom around the floor. Did you really? Yeah, HR hated it. I did have a director of NAB Bank on that and she did fall off, but I got her up and she said, I told you it was going to happen. It's all right. I had the global head of sales for Salesforce. Everybody loved my hoverboard because it was out before it. That was so trendy. But I did get around quickly. Key thing was I'd sit in the call center for an hour every month listening to customers and you'd hear what they're saying, but you'd also see what processes your people were using. you go, those tech people told me they'd fix that. And that's bullshit. Here they are still using post-it notes to remind themselves of things and stuff. So you get a real good feel. You've got to feel the business and lots and lots of customer visits. Not just for the sake of it. You'd go, okay, I want to talk to this customer because I want to talk about some new strategy. I want to talk to this customer because my biggest, I want to see if they're really happy with us. And you'd go out and do lots and lots of visits. And when you're going to see your customers, not only are you just you're going to do visits and you're going to see if they're happy, are you one to actually go with new ideas? Yeah, we do that all the time. Right? And we had what well, used to call the state of your state. You'd fly into each state twice a year. You'd have these lunches, only about 30, but I'd have real estate, finance, government all in that room. Yep. And you'd sit them deliberately next to each other. So the value was sitting next to the bank that doesn't give them much work. And they could have a chat why and yep. Tim Laws would present and we'd talk about what innovations we've got coming and it would just be a real Chatham House rules and have a really good discussions. You know, mm-hmm. I remember once in Victoria, the agent's complaining about stamp duty and we had the head of stamp duty from the government there. And he goes, well, if you guys give me more volume, I'll drop the rate. <laughs> fair enough. It's fair enough, right? Now, you're also known for bringing a lot of young people in. One of the things that I always found is that youth has no boundaries. So talking to young people about their ideas, you get really good ideas yourself. Really did encourage you know, young people moving through the business, but also making sure that people with great ideas had come Knocking on your door. When you're a data business, people often do come to you looking for either access to your data or funding. And it was just important that you listen to what they'd come up with because they don't have barriers in the way they think. So they solve problems that you don't know how to solve. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Graham Miribido. In our next episode, our last for season 2021, I sit down with Tony Stewart, CEO of UNICEF Australia, in what is arguably one of our most thought-provoking episodes to date. Often when you hear of a crisis in a country around the world, whether it be a tsunami or a cyclone. Um, Countries may say, well, we don't need foreign assistance. But actual fact, there's a team from UNICEF flying into those countries on standby with backpacks. 
that team is making sure that there's a safe place for displaced children straight away. Because the people who are arriving in those disasters often as fast as us are the human traffickers. The best place to traffic children is when there's displacement. Be sure to join us on the next episode. And now back to the show. Now, you're still an active investor, aren't you? Yeah. For our listeners out there, what do we look at if someone's going to look at, as you say, fintech, prop techs? What should someone analyze and we think through? Yeah, obviously, the key thing is the founder, their passion, their drive, and whether their solution actually is solving a problem. And then you can see, okay, I can see how that's solving. I can see the addressable market and the value prop. And then you really need to look at the go-to-market. How can they actually get this to people that need it and are willing to pay for it? Because there's a lot of great ideas out there and even a lot of platforms have been built. Mm -hmm. But as we said earlier, there's so many prop techs and fintechs that can't possibly all survive. So have they picked the right go-to-market plan because revenue is really important. And do you get that information easy? How do you get that information? You've got to spend a bit of time with these people, don't you? Oh, yes, yes, you do. You do. And, you know, first year of out, my business partners and I, we... After year one, we said, okay, that was a big year. We invested in stuff, some stuff we shouldn't have. So you decided not to pursue a career back in corporate? In no, no, of- I didn't. I didn't. I, I thought, you know. So you've done well. You've- I've done enough. I don't need to do great financially. I don't need to. I'm not chasing the next dollar, the next dollar. I'm just comfortable, like to spend time with my family and like to help other people that are trying to do something. So I get much more of a buzz helping other companies get going. Do you? Yeah, or growing than running one myself. I don't wish for 700 staff again. I love my staff, but I just don't wish for them again. All right, so you did that and decided what, to become an investor or what did you become? Yeah, yeah. so the boards I sit on, most of them I'm an investor in the company. So the Lindy Group, I'm an investor. Archistar, I'm an investor. Cypherpoint, which is an ASX listed company, I'm an investor. So spend the time on where there's, you know, a lot of alignment. So what's the emerging trends we should be looking at for, Graham? Definitely AI, machine learning are going somewhere and everyone should have some capability that, and in robotics, digital robotics, so that you can smooth out rough processes. It's clear that real estate and finance, which were great adjacent markets, are now becoming one. Yeah. When you have a look at what the Lendy Group's done with Domain and realestate.com and the same thing's happening in uh, the UK. Zupa recently bought Mojo, a little digital mortgage business. They've gone from advertising mortgages to cutting mortgages. Yeah, right. right. So, okay. And it makes a lot of sense, the same way as you think banks could sell insurance, but they're not very good at it. So... There's a big trend there. And the reason I call that trend out is that real estate's $8 trillion in value or maybe even $9 trillion now. It's the biggest asset class in Australia by far. The next one is superannuation at $3 trillion, yep. stock market at $2 trillion, right, and commercial real estate at $1 trillion. So that's where Australia stores its wealth. So things that are happening in finance and, you know, there's 11 million properties and 5 million don't have a mortgage at all. There's only $2 trillion of debt against that $9 trillion of value. Is that right? Yeah. So Americans say you've got a lazy balance sheet in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you delve down, we've got 5 million properties with zero mortgage. So why isn't there products where you can right button click, take some money out and do something with that? Yeah, but the value of our assets increased rapidly compared to a lot of the stuff in America, doesn't it? It depends what time frame you're looking that over in that Sydney goes through its growth spurts and then it goes through its corrections and it sort of averages out of 5 to 6% CAGR over 10 years. And people say, well, affordability, wages only growing at 3%. That's true. There's a gap there but the product has actually changed we used to live in 800 square meter blocks four bedroom houses two bathrooms yeah and now those same blocks are 450 square meters yep. and the houses might be a two-story instead of single story because they take up less 
and then we're living in apartments. You know, Australia started living in apartments at the turn of the century, mm. right? So the products change to make it more affordable. Houses are getting a lower cost base by reducing the size of the land. Yep. And apartments are about 25, 30% cheaper than houses. And Australians were having babies later in life. And so therefore they were moving closer to the city and they're going vertical, not horizontal. And it doesn't take you much of a trip through Asia to see they've been living vertical for a long time. And I spent a lot of time, I still do in India and China, not so much at the moment, but I was up there two or three times a year yep. because innovation there is applied innovation. When you build effectively one and a half Australia's every year. The Chinese know something about construction and finance. You're impressed on how they design? Yeah, well, I'm impressed at the speed and the efficiency at which they build. Mm -hmm. The other thing too is the Chinese are great marketers, right? Well, they were until the current regime, I think, is starting to stifle all that. But yeah. they were very good at social media and what I call ambient commerce. You bought this, now you should buy this, this, and this. They've been doing that for ages. And, you know, the biggest financial services companies were WeChat and yep. Weibo and those sorts of companies because they know you're there so they can sell you stuff while you're there. And they are very good at selling online and digital solutions and we, there's a lot to learn. So you don't apply things exactly the same and they, they do things a different way because of cultural differences. But the underlying technology and the go-to-market strategies are the same as in, you know, what do your customers want and what's the best way to get to them? And what's going to be the outcome, the fallout for younger people these days? Because it's very prohibitive to get into your first property. Banker mum and dad's been pretty good at that and helping out. Um, but... I think what you're seeing is a range of new products. I mean, the governments in various uh, states have stepped up and offering co-investment products. Yeah. It's an area I'm personally looking to invest in as well. I think it's a great opportunity where someone's sitting as a silent partner in your mortgage. They've got 20% and there's your deposit and you can just borrow 80 and away you go and they'll take more of the upside or you'll pay them a, an interest rate on that bit if you can afford to. So you'll find more innovative products there on the finance side. There are some companies who lend 100% of your mortgage. Depends on what your what um, job you've got and how long you've been in it. And usually they're tertiary educated people, been in a job at least three years, that sort of stuff. But there's different financial services solutions, but also the products are changing. As I said, COVID's kind of driven people out a little bit to have more space and there's more effective working. But you're also seeing the industry respond where Mervac was building apartments where one floor was basically like a WeWork floor. Yes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. How clever is that? Yeah, very smart. Right? So don't everybody have to buy a bigger house now so you don't fight when you're in the house or in your apartment. There's a floor you can go to work and come back up. So it will always find a way, and I don't think there's ever been a decade in Australian history where someone has, hasn't said, wow, housing's getting expensive. COVID, what's it done to technology? Well, as I said, I based on the fact we're already in an industrial revolution, which kind of started about 10 years ago, we're about to hit this steep incline. I think COVID just compressed the time we've taken to go. Is this this S-curve you talk about? So what is that? So what it is is that innovation starts and you think it's really cool, but then it innovates to a degree that, like you never saw that coming. It's like the invention of the computer, right? The computer in the 60s than the PC in the 80s. Yes. It took another 25 years before we're all connected, We've got smartphones and away we go, but it's really the same device, just made smaller and faster, right? So I think what you're going to see is the smartphones you've got, the devices you've got. Like right now, if uh, I've got a flight at four o'clock, mm -hmm. it should be calling the Uber, saying I've called it, is it okay? Yes, press yes. And the car's out the front and away you go. Why do you have to actually go call an Uber? when it already knows, it can see in your calendar that you booked through the airline away you go. So I think you're going to see those sorts of things happening. Yep. You're going to see, in every industrial revolution, the real value extracted 
was from the innovations being applied to the old industries as they were considered at the time. So when you take these innovations, apply them to the biggest industries out there right now, that's when you're going to see things happen. So finance industry is big, the property industry is big, logistics, you start to automate and digitize more and more of that, then there's a lot of value comes out because it's already an existing multi-billion dollar industry, not some new industry that's that's kicking up. What about the impact on cyber? If everything is everyone's going online and being joined digitally, we're going to have that underworld or all sorts of stuff coming through and hacking us, aren't we? Non-stop. We all used to live in castles with a keep too. That's right, we did. We didn't yeah. venture out and then they've got this thing called a railroad. That's right. Which they could pull that thing up and they did. And So <clears throat> shit happens out there, but also that's the price of progress is that things will happen. Cyber is very real, probably underreported, so everybody needs so? to have that. And again, again, that sunlight test, am I getting someone in or retaining someone to constantly be checking my environment because it's all digital, so why can't they? They can, right? So I think it is very important and... You know, people say, well, a lot of people used to engage in terrorism and now engage in cyber because it's easier to do and you don't get shot at or shot back at. So it's definitely on the up. And when you look at networks, franchise networks, where the franchisee may, a franchisor may be pretty solid, but are all the franchisees, you know, you need to get out there and make sure all your people are are solid there. So there needs to be attention paid to that, but we still need to progress. So always be that. I think it's clearly... It's a great area to invest in cyber cybersecurity. And as a nation, are we thinking enough about the future in the sense of investing in technology in this country, do you think? Well, I think there's a lot of investment in technology. And I think it's great we've had some big successes like Atlassian and those sorts of guys. Yeah. And you're seeing now these guys have set up their own funds. And yesterday with Zomo, the e-bike, you got Atlassian leading an $80 million round, putting in $40 million. Now, Australian investment vehicles didn't normally cut checks like that right right. so it's good to see and these these guys are well recognized on the global stage so yes atlassian yeah absolutely absolutely i mean massive and and there are you know canvas another one where they've made a lot of money and they're going to make a whole lot more and they're already talking about how they're going to plow back into you know the community environment or whatever but these are big businesses dollar wise and they're doing good things and i think you've got a number Australian companies used to bolt overseas as soon as they got the ten or fifteen million dollar raise, right? Whereas now, if you you got this example there that Lassian cutting forty fifty million dollar checks, Airtree's another one. Like it's good to see. So what do we know? We're going to keep the people here, or are they still going to bolt? Well, great thing about the new digital world is we've all realised that wow, you can build product anywhere and ship it, right? And let's face it, Microsoft and Google have been doing this for years, and everybody out there's just been a box unpacker for corporate back in the US. So right? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, as in you're basically sales and distribution. You don't have product management sitting here in Australia creating Microsoft products for Australia. Now, Australia did feed a lot of information back to Microsoft because Telstra was the biggest user of email. Microsoft Exchange was actually invented for Telstra. Is that right? If you go back and look at the history, yeah. They had 5,000 email post boxes, as they called them, and so that's why they invented it. Yeah, so I think you've got a model there now where, you know, you still need your presence inside these other countries and expand to, but you can really... Keep your talent at home. Atlassian really moved to the Silicon Valley, built up their business. Now they've moved back and they've got massive facilities here and they're dragging all the talent back into the country. Still got their stuff in Silicon Valley, but this is headquarters, right? And now they're looking at investing in other smart companies, which is good to see. So the more of these successful Australian companies that have this setting up these funds to help the others, and they know what to look for because they've been successful. So we've got the talent coming through, you think? I think so. Yeah, I think Australia has been very 
good at being innovative. We're a big country with not many people, so we're innovative out of necessity, mm -hmm. right? And the state's federation system, which I think shouldn't be there. We should just be one country. But And we can see all of the mess that COVID caused, having a state-based regime. Yep. To make solutions work on a national basis in Australia, we have to work really hard. And so that augurs wealth when you go overseas. Yeah, but we're the land of oligopoly. So, so, so those guys come through state, but aren't they going to just pick them up and take them? You do have a pretty active anti-competition commission here, I think. And with the number of startups and attackers and would-be disruptors, I think there's enough to pick from. But you are right in that if these businesses aren't well-funded mm. and they can't get traction because their go-to-market's not there, then the big guys will. Yeah. And, you know, 86400 getting picked up by NAB was pretty clever. I mean, NAB had a go at it with Eubank, but used a, a slick front end on a on crappy old processor. So it was lipstick on the pig. Yep. Right. And now they picked up 86400, a beautiful digital business ready to go. So again, you know, you've got that situation where the shareholders were there for a return and that was a return they got. Mm -hmm. But there, there are more coming. And I think there's more accountability and transparency. So whilst the oligopolies can appear to be sloppy and I think A, there'll be more challenges and B, there's a lot more pressure on them to deliver as well. Am I going to get the funding from the banks, Graham? Are the banks starting to change and into these and new fintechs and the technology companies? I may be raising money through crowdfunding or I may be getting offshore or I may be getting through PE. Yeah. Are the banks starting to change their thinking? I don't think so. I think the banks are swim between the flags in Australia. They're getting safer and safer and sticking to their core business and producing some great results. So why shouldn't they? Yep. There are so many 50 billion to $100 billion lending segments which are reasonably good chunks of business for specialist lenders to exist. And I mean, Australia, whilst you have got the big four, have a look at Macquarie. You know, they're the second fastest growing mortgage bank in Australia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They spent a lot of money on tech. They've got fast turnaround times. Like they're responding to what the market needs and they're getting rewarded for that. At the same time, you know, you've got Liberty out there, Pepper Money. You've got a lot of choice in that specialist lending in the areas that the banks won't go. So it might look like a minority, but these guys are getting pretty good at you know, lending to mainstream too. What about the boardroom? You know, you, hear, you see a lot of comments on a regular basis about the need for more education in the boardroom, for the opportunities coming past the desk. Are they too risk averse, et cetera? Because obviously it means there is a bit of risk when you're investing in new technology. What's your take? There's definitely a bent towards compliance and risk management, which is very important. But a good board is like a good exec team. You need all the different disciplines represented okay. and you need balance and you need leadership yep. and you need diversity. I think Australia's sort of tackled the, like the rest of the world has around gender diversity, yep. but getting that age diversity on there, making sure you've got some younger ones with unencumbered thinking, yep. don't let them run the whole place, but it's good to get their views because they see things you don't. Okay. So you need that sort of stuff, but also they got to look for balance on the boards, not just in talent and skill, but in the time spent on core things. So yes, keep us safe, make sure the accounting's right and all that sort of stuff, make sure the cybersecurity stuff's right, make sure your compliance on whatever industry you're being regulated by is right. Yeah. But are you devoting the majority of your time to grow strategies for the business, right? And that's where I think we're out of balance. Do you? I think a lot of boards are out of balance, spending too much, particularly in the financial services with the regulatory environment that's yeah. there. It does require a lot of attention. And I would have thought some of the sort of advisors and suppliers like the accounting firms and the consulting firms would have created more products to support businesses in the boardroom so they can get on with 
leading the company as well with the CEO, right? So I think there's a way to go there in my view. So they're not incentivized enough or they're just distracted too much or is it just... I think they're scared. Scared of what? And they're scared of their reputation, scared of... Yeah. It just seems to be a common kind of setup where people sort of float between different boards in this country and you just need to... You need diversity also on the international front, like don't just have locals, right? Yeah, I agree. You know, there's stuff happening out there and it's good to... And there's great stuff that's happening here that when we take it over there, it's, you know, back in the day, CoreLogic used to use Australia as its innovation ground because... We were doing things, you know, five years ahead of them. So there's plenty that Australia's got to offer, but we've got to make sure we've got balance in that boardroom. So are you seeing many young people come on boards? I think Telstra's initiative, uh, they have a young lady, I think she's in her 30s, that came on. It was quite accomplished. I mean, it's not just about the age. You've got to be the right kind of thinking and, and stuff. Certainly you've got coming through the startups, founders tend to be younger people, so they end up ultimately on the board of their own business. But, yeah. And, and it's not the same. And look, the challenge is, if you find someone who's come from their own startup and done really well, entrepreneurial, taking a risk, et cetera, et cetera, as you say, and then go onto a corporate board, how do they adjust? Do they enjoy it? Do they find it? Because it's not, it sounds all good in theory, Graham. A lot of them don't even like it. No, no. And, and they wouldn't. And again, you've got to come down to when you join a company, you want to look at the vision, the strategy, the CEO and say, I want to be part of this company. Same thing, I think young ones stepping towards a board want to make sure that that board really is going to encourage them to speak up and encourage engagement and challenging the board and the executive team. Otherwise, don't go there. I'm not saying the young entrepreneur or CEO has got all the answers either. You know, There's lots of examples where they're great guys, great innovators, but they don't make strategic CEOs. They're not the growth person for that. And smart ones step aside and run the innovation and they bring a CEO that's when you start to get some momentum, you need operational process, you need growth strategies, and you keep building cool new shit that they're going to sell. Yeah, okay. The young people you're talking about coming through and building their careers, what are they looking for in leadership? Is it different to what you and I look for in leadership? We hear ESG, we hear values, we, you, you mentioned yeah, purpose. I think Has that changed a lot? The wonderful thing about Australian culture is we call bullshit really early, yep. right? So you can't go and sugarcoat stuff. Uh, so I think they look for authenticity in businesses and they look for purpose. And you even see now where as they get wealthy, they're pouring money back into either their industry or into the community or into the world, right? These are good traits. They're clearly more attuned to their environment and the world stage than others. Sure, there may have been those that just chase it for the dollars and, and working up the corporate ladder. But I think, you know, COVID's probably helped people rethink that one too. Yeah. I think what was yeah, that absolutely. article in the AFR, The Great Resignation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, what am I doing all this for? Yep. So, yeah, I think they look for that. They look for that someone's got a vision, a strategy, and a purpose, and that they're giving back. I think they're, they're key. And as I said, Aussies call it pretty quickly if uh, they don't see that you're genuine. So what do you reckon you accelerated so quickly in your career? Oh, <laughs> just lucky. Right place, no, come right on, time. Come on, uh, You know, for me… Yeah, uh, but you got to put yourself in the right place on the right time. You do. Determination, working hard doesn't hurt. Head down, bum up and just help anyone regardless. Like in Telstra, some of my team used to say, oh, you help other divisions too much. We're here to, for our own accountability. I said, yeah, but it's better for that division to sell that product than us. Let them sell it because it's better for the company. So greater good thinking, I think, helped me a lot in my corporate yeah. world. And I used to run my division just like no one else existed and just do what I had to do. But I was very aware of what my colleagues were doing and I'd help them as appropriate. So, but I think being genuine and hardworking and also networking. 
so people know what you're about. That's really important. Yeah, 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 absolutely. When I say networking, I mean, you know, you keep in touch with people in industries that you're interested in and you help them. And like I, I help a lot of people, a lot of people help me many years later, a lot of my customers are still mates, you know, like, yep. so it's good to have that network, but I've been lucky and education was important back in the day to have that business degree as well as the engineering to understand business, but I always had a taste for a little bit of entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah, so you told me that taste, when, when did it all start? When were you doing the deals on the side? Oh, I was a kid, of course. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Selling music tapes or whatever, doing, bought a nice hi-fi system and I'd record cassettes and With? sell them. Yeah. And then, well, I was a, uh, at engineering school, I'd go and paint houses and yeah, make money. They always, always had something, I was doing an alarm business on the side, doing alarm systems, always had something on the go. Oh, security alarms for yeah. houses? Yeah. Oh, we would have cleaned up in the day, wouldn't Bass, you? Bass, mate. Budget alarm services. <laughs> the big hand coming through the window. Great logo. Great logo. <laughs> Sold Great it to Honeywell. <laughs> it was yeah. all good, yeah. You know, you, you had the uh, monitoring. They just wanted to buy the subscription business, so you'd, they, there was a price they paid and away you went. But, but yeah, always had something on the go. But now for me, balance is important too. Family is very important. I work really hard through the week, but I'd hardly ever send an email on the weekend. It's like, that's family time. See you later. Friday night, never do a function, never do anything on the weekends unless my partner's invited, that sort of stuff. One pager you talked about was Mr. Blunt, right? Yeah. Still appropriate this day and age? Absolutely. I do it with all the business I'm in. So, you know, it has your vision and mission at the top. It has your objectives there, normally five or six, what the strategies are to achieve those objectives. So the objectives are smart, you know, specific, measurable, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The strategies and then the KPIs. What are you going to monitor to know that that's going to happen? Right, but the objective is the objective. Make this much revenue, this much EBITDA, these many customers. You put the numbers on. The numbers Absolutely, down. hard and fast. It was very clear. And I'd say to staff, if you don't see something there that relates to what you're doing, then you just need to ask your boss, why am I here? Right, because everything the company is about is there. So it is to handle product, marketing, people, finance. So I had those streams all catered for. And what do you do if people aren't making it? Do you swift the move? What's, what's... I'm a big believer in... Um, being really clear on your objective setting and setting those objectives before the year starts. That's what I love, the American financial year. You'd wrap up everything before Christmas. I'd do your review. I'd set your goals for next year and you had a great Christmas. You knew exactly what you got to do next year and you know what your rating was for this year and what bonus you're getting. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big believer in always setting the objectives very early and also setting here's what I think is completely satisfactory. Here's what I think is great. Here's what I think is outstanding. Here's what I think needs improvement. Here's what I think is don't come Monday. So on the four or five objectives I sent you as an executive, you're very clear on what completely satisfactory is. And that's all I'm expecting from you. But if you're telling me you're shooting for outstanding or superior this year, then okay, I'll write in there the numbers that are required for you to have achieved that. So when it came to review time, I'd, people would self-review and they'd come and say, what number did you come up with? Like, oh, there's a number I come up with and we'd normally be pretty close. There's no subjectivity to it. It's Everything's got to be quantified there. Okay. You can talk about behavioral things and we'd always talk about those in reviews as well. Yep. That's what I always found is clear objective setting and I'd say even the new staff that were joining, if you haven't been set objectives by your boss, because sometimes bosses don't get around to doing that stuff, which is just to really irk me, I'd say you write down the five things you think you should be doing in your job and you send them to your boss and say, this is what I think I should be doing, boss. So don't be a victim. Don't sit there and say, my boss hasn't set my objectives. Yeah. I know it's not good that he hasn't or she hasn't, but don't be a victim. Get on with your job and say, this is what I think I should be working on. Don't leave ambiguity there. 
in the communication between a leader and, and their staff. So I always found clear communication on what's expected from you mm-hmm. really, really works. And if they're not hitting it, how long do you mess around with Well, that's why the other thing about it is that when you do your review, you're going like, hey, man, you're in uh, needs improvement the whole time here. Do you think this is the right job for you? So yeah. so, yeah, you have to make the tough calls. You have to make the tough calls. But often people start looking for a job when you start to put the heat on. And one thing I did notice early on, and I had a really great head of innovation who just looked for really cool stuff and the tech host brought to me this thing called Agile, right? And um, I was wondering why we're spending so much money on fucking post-it notes because they're all over the place. Anyway, the whole walls are filled with post-it notes. And to the head of the program office's credit, he got us in the execs and explained the process and how it all came out of the Japanese lean methodology, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. And then after a while I go, this stuff is really cool. So I built my own version of it for running companies, right? And we had this huge board and I used to have customers come and watch us. So I would um, use the same methodology, which is you take that annual business plan, I said, and yeah. you decompose that into epics. What are the 27 or 40 things I'm going to get done this year to deliver this business plan? Then you'd load them up onto the board and then you'd put them onto the swim lane each quarter and say, okay, of these 27 or 30 things, which five are we doing now? And you'd put them on and I'd apply all the agile discipline of there can only be one owner. You can have as many people from your team working on it and cross teams, but one owner, one bum to kick. We'd have a half an hour stand up every Monday, 10 o'clock, all the execs in the lunchroom, staff are welcome to sit and listen while I'm asking the execs to say, where are we at, where are we at, where are we at? And what had happened was self-healing because we all put up the objectives that we're going to go for. We all put up the tasks that have to be done. And every week, all you had to do was just say, what have you progressed on? Say nothing if you've done nothing. If you say nothing for two or three weeks, I'm going to go, what the fuck you been up to? Right? So <laughs> I didn't have to say that because guess what? 9.30 every morning, everyone's updating their chart on the wall to say what they've done. Anyway, I put that in. There, I think they still run that program, but I had customers, Genworth came and looked at it, Combank came and looked at it, Pepper came and looked at it, Aussie Home Loans looked at it and put it in there and stuff. Right? Yeah. So it was just a good methodology for if ever you feel like you don't not getting somewhere. And I did it because I do these great plans with the team and each quarter you'd go, oh, I'm not sure how far along the plan I am. Right. You come to the end of the year and go, ah, oh, shit, we made that one, didn't make that one. Yep. And it was yep. just a great way to make sure you got shit done. It wasn't a strategic tool. It was an operational tool to go, you said you want to do this in a year. We'll break that down into the 40 or 50 things that that means. Schedule them. And then everyone got really good because everybody's standing around. Someone says, I'm going to launch these five products. And I go, have you launched it? And then the product guy goes, yep. And we say the whole team, is that done? Done? Done, done means it's done, done, right? And the, the head of ops would go, nope. My team have not been briefed on this. The customer called in and says, what about this product? It's not working probably. We don't know about it. Well, it's not done, done. Back onto the done lane. It's not done, done until everybody says it's ready to go or that you've actually completed it. And what it does is it allows people to go, I'm doing this. And they go, well, you haven't asked for my resources to do that. So suddenly you're surfacing issues before they became an issue. So I just found a really good process. You like to be non-conventional? A little. What sort of stuff have you done to really shake people up, to really make them change the way they think or engage customers? For us, uh, when I was running that business, uh, and the same it was in Telstra in the UK, we were known as the company you could trust and the company you could have fun with. We would always have really good events and I'd do things like, as an idea of my sales manager, we'd send you a Reebok shoe and the other one was at the venue when you came and turned up to the event. We'd send you a bonsai plant, but the maintenance kit was 
at the event, right? And then you'd make sure that they met the stage crew afterwards. There's something special about the event. So you build engagement, but the same as those lunches and dinners where we'd sit everybody in strategic places so yeah. that they could get business or share issues. And then every year we used to have this dinner at uh, Pidata. It was always a view of the harbour or a view of uh, whatever city we were in. And towards the end of the night, I'd have the Havana Club come out and lay out all my cigars and we'd have cigar night, right, afterwards. And it's amazing how many people smoke cigars after they've had a few red wines. Yeah, very yeah. much so. But, yeah, so have fun, integrity, open door. You're like you can talk about issues and, you know, have lots of customers that tell you when they thought you weren't doing a good job and, and when you were doing a good job. So for me, that was the key. So what's leadership then? People want to be led. They want to know somebody's got the helm and, and, and sending us somewhere. So I think leadership is setting a very clear direction and strategy, as I said earlier. It's one thing to say we're going to be the greatest at this in the world. Yeah, that's just you, a statement, you, right? You've got to say these are the five things we're going to do. This is how we're going to measure that we got there. These are the objectives. This is how we're going to do it. They've got to see how. Particularly Australians, like in some cultures, American cultures, they'll put out these wide-ass things, but they're not. Australians want to see where's the steps, man? Like, okay, I'll follow you now. I can see where we're going. And so filling in those steps, reporting back on that, and then also having the ability to address issues as they come up as a team and saying, hey, you know, we're trying to get here. We're only here. The KPIs say we're not going to make it at this rate. What are we going to do about that? Don't wait for the end and say, okay, that didn't work. What's your mindset? You're always glass I'm half full. full all the time? Yeah, and sacred cows make the best hamburgers. <laughs> if something's not good, shoot it in the head, grind it up, move on to the next one. That's it? Yeah, well, you just... You got to call it when it is, right? You can't. You start up, you know, a business and you're going somewhere, and if you realise customers just don't want that, yep. just stop trying to sell it, withdraw, fix it, or withdraw and kill it. So you know, a lot of times people flog that dead horse, and you know, it's a waste of resources. So you're a quick study then? I think so. Where'd you mess up, Graham? What was your biggest learning? Oh, where did not mess up? Probably in hiring. Probably should have used a recruitment company. Damn. They do come in handy sometimes. Yeah, I did. I did use a trick. I, I have a lot of faith in good recruitment companies like yours um, because they get to know you and know what you want. But, yeah, sometimes expeditiously you hire people On a and roll. you realise afterwards and, of course, if it's at the exact ranks, it takes a while yeah, to get it right. I really stuffed up when I didn't see the GFC coming and we were the data company, right? Was probably should have seen that in 08. I'll blame it on I was still new, but it was two years in the job. But, yeah, I was building out, hiring people over the place. We're going to do this and this and this and this. And then the just fell off a cliff, right, and their customers are hurting yeah. in the real estate and the finance and didn't see that coming and didn't learn the art of pivoting until I'd learned that lesson, right, which is you've got to know that if the market goes down in, in the market I was in, agents go from selling houses to looking more on their rent roll. So turn your language to their rent roll and yeah, how to right. find the few houses there are to sell, how to get a buyer for them. Mm -hmm. For the mortgage broker, talk to them about refinance because not as many sales transactions. So you've got to learn the art of pivot, not just be flogging the same old thing. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so not, not picking a big trend like that was one and um, people. And, you know, as you get older, you kind of see it quicker. Do you trust too many people at the time or what was that? I like to trust people because I'm all about, you know, people are, are worth a second go or a third go even, if their heart's in it. I don't write people off just because of one thing. Yep. But you do look for, okay, they're just not going to listen or whatever. And even on our investment strategies, we'd 
were trusting too much and after yep. year one we said, okay, no dickhead policy next year. So we did that. Then yep. a year later, we go, okay, no Muppet policy. And now we're on to the no dickhead, no Muppet policy and we're doing much better. The Muppet policy? Yeah. Haven't heard that one. Muppets just don't listen. Hmm. Don't right. dickheads, they just don't listen. Hmm. Now while I got you, for all those listening out there, what is the world of property going to do for the next few years? What are you seeing? So I'll get a tank, sell, sell now so I can buy, buy, buy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you can't have sustained growth without a correction or a slowing down. So that's what's going to happen. You know, yeah, come on, everyone says that. You've got a timeline. So, it's easy to yeah, say. Come on, yeah. you're the expert. You're well, the data. I am the expert. And I did pick the last one when, you know, Sydney was growing at three years of over 10%. Yep. And then it started to decline. And I had one guy in, in the Middle East, a, a property finder, which is a like a real estate economy in the Middle East. Yep. He's saying, Sydney's going to tank 30%. I said, no way. No way, I'll bet you right now, right? I said, make it 20%. It won't even get to 20% tank. I gave him a five to one rating and I had Tim Wallace, the arbitrator, every month would send him a report. And I said, at the end of 2020, he said Sydney will have tanked by 20% from the high. It went down to 12 or 13, so it got there. But I said, after three years of 10 or 15% growth, you're going to get a 10% correction and you're still ahead. And then it's going to start to Kagar out at three to five. So I think what you're seeing now is going to slow right down. You're going to have a 3% growth rate next year and probably 5% of the growth rate the year after. So you think, do you? That's, that, that's my view and I'm always right. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think it, it, it will slow down. But it won't tank because of that thing I said earlier is that this is such an asset class and 60% of the value in a bank is the mortgages sitting on their balance sheet. So Australia's got way too much there. Right. You know, Australian properties. Nine trillion against a stock market of three trillion. America's forty-seven trillion in real estate and like eighty-seven trillion in stock market. It's a very different. They think differently. They put their money differently. They got a loan to value ratio of forty-five percent across the country. We got twenty-four percent. So for all this households, and I'm not saying they're not households that have over indebted, but I'm just saying the country itself will not collapse okay. because, and we can't overbuild because we can't get enough tradespeople to build fast enough, right? Yep. So America could do that. They're good at logistics and they overbuilt and they paid the price during the GFC. What I was going to say was that mate who lost that bet and yeah. gave him five to one, he had to pay me five grand. I made him put it towards my leukemia foundation. Well, I'm perfect. <laughs> this coming to my next question. So you do a lot of work in charity and you do some pretty outrageous things. So you want to talk us through what you've done? Yeah, I shaved my head. It's really yeah, outrageous. It's really <laughs> outrageous. <laughs> well, um, well, you do. That, you put it out there. It's I good. do. I do put it out there. I do tap that network, <laughs> as you would have seen, and thank you for your donation. I uh, doing really well at RP Data, and a mate of mine became the state CEO for Leukemia Foundation. I thought, well, we don't have any charities. That's a really good thing. So we started to sponsor it. Mm -hmm. And every year I just G up the team. And, of course, I'd tap all my suppliers because I'm spending so much money with them. They can spend some tap my customers, just tapped. We started to build up, build up, build up. And the, about five years ago, my own son got blood cancer. So oh, really? Who, who would have thought, right? So I thought, okay, there's a sign. I should be here. He's fine. But he's in his 30s and it's just not sort of stuff that normally pops up at that that age, right? Yeah, yeah. So I just kept going harder. And then when I sort of semi-retired, as I call it, I just kept it going and kept tapping the network. And Leukemia Foundation told me, I think I'm in the annual report, but I'm the largest single fundraiser ever. Over 350 grand, I think I've raised for them. What sort of things have you done to make me swipe to shaving your head? I've, I've, it's, a good, it's a good look. <laughs> I promise if you don't sponsor me, I'll send you more photos of my shaved head. <laughs> I've got really good mates like Nino at Pendolino's yeah. gives up a private dinner for six or eight or whatever and I just raffle that off. 
and stuff like that. So yeah, just crazy things. But I, basically, I just really just guilt people into paying me more money. And of course, if you ever tap me, I, I always pay. So so it's a quid pro quo. We invest a lot as we should do to give back. So yeah, people doing the various charities that they do I always obviously contribute. Yeah. Do you reckon we see enough personalities in business these days and leadership? Uh, I think we've got some really good inspirations out there. I thought just quickly on the donation thing that, you know, Mackenzie Bezos's methodology in six months gave away more than the Gates Foundation could in three years, you know, very, very beautifully. I think they're really good examples of smart people doing great things like yep. that. Yep. I think we do need more kind of characters on the stage to um, sort of wake people up a bit. I think Australia candidly got very lazy pre-COVID. You think so? With, yeah. uh, well, I think with student immigration. And look, if I had a business that had 60% of my revenue sitting with one customer, my shareholders would be all over me. So why did we invest so much of our relationship into China? Not that it's not a good market, we should chase it, but yeah. why do we ignore Malaysia and Indonesia the UK, when I was in the UK, Australia's largest trading partner was the UK. Yeah, that's right. right that's right. Yeah. In the 90s. Yeah, so from the that's 90s right. to now, it's like number five. Yep. And now they're out of the EU. So, but I just think the country got a bit lazy about where it sold its stuff to. And I think we got lazy on the education system getting fat off international students. I like those kind of wake up calls. Makes yeah, but do you think bad. Australians are naturally good sellers? I think they are pretty good sellers. Do I, you? Think I think they're authentic. Yeah. And, you know, the reason we did reasonably well in Asia is Asia is a an area that runs on trust. You build it over time. It's not about the contract which they throw straight in the drawer. It's all about the relationship, right? Okay. So I think we're very good at that because we're a very multicultural society. So we've learned that. And um, Aussies are all about mateship. And so they understand trust and integrity and they've got the, the no bullshit rule. So I think I think we are. We don't necessarily know it. And I think we do need more confidence in that and there should be more support for that. It's looking pretty exciting this next year. What do you see in the, on the global terms? You just said you just done your whirlwind tour of, of Europe. You're pretty positive going forward? Yeah, I think COVID behind the scenes has caused a lot of recut trade deals, I'm sure. I think we're going to see some benefits of that. I think this is the time Australia needs to really take advantage of what's happened out there. The world has shrunk a bit as we all got closer to each other as it's happened, re-establish those ties physically and get on with the international game. And uh, I think here locally, don't lose that applied innovation that we've been very good at, like make stuff work. I think it's going to be a great couple of years. It's going to be a lot of growth. You do, do you? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And I do not, and I'll take bets on this, I do not believe interest rates will go up next year, like up the year after. Why makes you say that? I say that because you've got to take in all the inputs. So, yeah, you're seeing house prices go up, yeah. right? But until wages growth starts to catch up, yeah. I can't see how the RBA can because you can't put that interest rate up if you don't have the income into the household to match that. Now, the other thing too is I don't see a crash and a whole lot of delinquencies either because all of the banks, all of the lenders have had at least 2 to 3% buffer in all of their lending criteria anyway. So if they lent you something at 3%, they did all their modelling on 5 Yeah, right. And if you didn't past the five, they wouldn't have lent it to you, right? So the buffer is there. So, I, and I just don't think wages will catch up. There are pockets, like yep. hospitality's crying for staff at the moment. Absolutely. Data scientists. Yeah. But I think it will take a while for wages to catch up enough that they will call it. But I think the year after next. What about inflation in the US? Not worrying you at all? Yeah. That's at runaway proportions. It's starting to take off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Australia has to stop catching a cold every time America sneezes, but there are 
you know, particularly when you look at only probably less than 30% of our funding comes from overseas for lending in this country. Most of it's done through deposits and we're really healthy on deposits. So I think we're robust enough to get through that. Okay. All right. Now, look, if you're going to look back at that young man starting his career with his, or even earlier playing with his Dick Smith models and buying and selling on the side and painting houses and all the stuff you were doing, what advice would you give him now? Maybe spend less on parties and going out. Or maybe spend more. (laughs) (laughs) Get into red wine earlier. Is that right? I love my red wine now, but yes, I should have got into it earlier, I think. I don't think there's too many things I'm unhappy with with where I've ended up or what I've done. Probably, you know, the bottom line one would be just spend more time with your kids when they're younger would have been the the main thing. And um, I do remember once in um, England where I was running Telstra and, you know, you'd work your guts out there when you're starting a new enterprise like that and then you'd wait for for the evening after dinner and then you'd ring Australia and get more stuff done. I remember once I walked in on the phone and there's my two-year-old with a Motorola flip phone on his shoulder and he's walking around pretending to be me. And I never, ever from that day on ever walk in the house on the phone. Is that right? Never, ever, ever. I thought if that's what, that's what I've done to him, oh, my God, you're a dickhead. So never, 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 never have I ever walked in on the phone again since that day. So Because when you walk through that front door, your kids come to you, they want to be with you. And they don't want you on your phone and you're going, just oh, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Just, I stopped dead in my tracks. Well, Graham, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you hey, today. Good catching up with you too, man. All right. You've been listening to No Limitations. 